Uh, open your Bibles to 2 Timothy, chapter 3. This morning, as you noticed in your notes, I, I, I'm taking, uh, I wouldn't say a break, but just a Sunday off from, from walking through 1 John, and uh, I've been enjoying that, and, and uh, I just thought this was an important Sunday, this being the Sunday before Reformation, and, and, and I hope that you might indulge me a little bit as I uh, share about uh, maybe some of my heroes in the faith and, and what uh, the Reformation means. Some of you might have heard that word and thought, you know, what is he talking about? We know he's kind of crazy, but then he uses this word and it makes us think that he's even more so a little bit off his rocker. But uh, the Reformation is speaking to a wonderful uh, moment or, or an extended moment, really, in church history. Uh, this, this wonder we talk about on, uh, maybe you've heard the, of the 90, Martin Luther's 95 Thesis and how he, he took those theses and nailed them to a church door in Wittenberg, Germany for debate. And what God, uh, uh, or what Martin Luther des, des, desired was a debate, exactly that. He pointed, the, or excuse me, nailed these, his 95 Theses and they were written in Latin. Um, meaning for the church, and this is the proper way. And I know it sounds kind of odd, him coming and I didn't want to think that. He's nailing something to the church door. It sounds like he's defacing something, but this is the way they went about it. If you, have, uh, if you desire some type of a debate, please don't nail anything to our church door. Um, email will work just as, just as well. But he was going through the proper channels to do this. He, he wanted to engage the church leaders who were uh, going about the traditions of the church, and he felt that they were, uh, ex- uh, um, it's the right word, just abusing, really, you might want to say that, the people. Uh, indulgences and selling of indulgences and misunderstanding the truth of Scripture. And so he had, he had wanted to go to the church and he had been studying and, and uh, come to the realization that there is a righteousness apart from the law, right, in, in Romans 3. And um, so he wanted this and he, so therefore he, he, he nailed them to the door. And they were written in Latin. And somebody in through church history, which we do not know, took those 95 theses and translated them into German and they got distributed. And so what happened, you know, Martin Luther planned a debate, and what God intended was a reformation. And it becomes very significant, and of course I've titled this this morning, so it's a little break from 1 John, but uh, the significance of the reformation. We are, um, we benefit immensely from this time in history, and it's a very special day. Maybe you've seen stuff, maybe on your Facebook or not, uh, um, this comes up the 500th year of the reformation. This is back in 1517, Martin Luther did that, and of course... This is the 500th year, being 2017. Um, and it's important, and I don't want to necessarily go into a history and give you a, a history lesson or anything like that. I love church history, and I can, I can kind of nerd out on some of that, and you'd be like, oh, please don't you know, spare us, Pastor. We don't do that. But uh, I do enjoy those things. But I, I want you to understand the significance of what we hold to. And not just in the fact that Martin Luther had done these things. Of course, this is under the power of God, the realization of the gospel. And the importance of God's word. And, and, and I reason I thought it was important, not only the 500th anniversary, but I do see these things in, in our society. And this tendency to, to, to maybe um, not hold true to the word of God. And I see that as, as very important for us to understand where, what is happening here. What are people talking about? But that this morning we would cling to these doctrines. And that we would have this heart to, to hold dear God's word and especially the, the teachings of God's word. You know, I think of this as a church. You know, if you think about the church in general, uh, not, a, not us, of course, but the church in general is, is, is kind of like this, this, if you equate it to an automobile, right? I don't know if you've ever gone over a pothole and, and your alignment kind of gotten out of, 
out of, out of whack. You let go of the wheel and the car wants to dart one way or the other. Has anyone ever experienced that? You know, some of us. Um, you know what it's like there? You know, if you get into four-wheel drive vehicles and you have an older car like I do, an old Scout, um, especially when you want to get over rocks, right? So you've got to have clearance. And these guys, we, of course, you raise the vehicle. And they, they've learned that, that if you mess with that steering, right, quite a bit, you, you learn what they call bump steer is all about. All right, so bump steering happens is when you're driving down the road, you hit a bump. Next thing you know, you're like three or four five feet over. It just bumps, and you're just over in the next lane pretty quick because your steering just does this. And it's kind of like bump jump, really. You know, they call it bump steer. But, um, and so the steering is very important. The reason I say that is that sometimes I look at the church, and I think, you know, they kind of react, and the church kind of just moves. It when, the, when the Word of God is absent, right, it's almost like someone let go of the will, and the church just kind of you know, goes off somewhere. And I think it's important for us um, that we come back, and this is what the Reformation is about, is about coming back to the truth of Scripture. And so this morning, I just want to walk through the five solos. Maybe you've heard that of, of the Reformation. This is kind of these five key elements, what they mean and how they apply to us this morning and how we've been holding on to them and how I pray that each of us would see the importance of them, not only in our own life, but as we go forward. So let's just offer a brief prayer that God would bless this time. Please bow your heads. Father, I do thank you uh, for the privilege of this time to be together. I pray that you would instruct us, that you would make us mindful, Lord, of the truths of your word, as they apply to our lives, and that we would hold dear, God, these doctrines. Uh, I ask, God, that you allow me to get out of the way, that every eye and life would be fixed upon you. And I thank you for that, and I pray this in the wonderful and awesome name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. So as we kind of get into this, and I had you turn to 1 Timothy, I'll be looking at a lot of passages today, and I think I have most of them up on the screen as well. But um, as we kind of get into this, there is a statement, and maybe you've heard this, about uh, the church reformed and always being reformed according to the Word of God. And if you ever talked about, and sometimes there are some words there that we kind of go, wait a minute, what, is, what does that mean? Quoting Michael Horton here, he says, We confess that we belong to a church and not simply to ourselves, and that this church is always created and renewed by the Word of God rather than the Spirit of the age. And so when we talk about coming back to the truths of Scripture, and I believe in the Reformation, God in His graciousness is, is enlightening these reformers, Martin Luther, John Calvin, and uh, Eric Zwingli were the, pre, uh, the dominant ones, as they come and they, they kind of refine, if you will, the truths of Scripture and what it means. And the church had really gotten into the idea of, of traditionalism. The church had authority and it was doing some things that were abusive to the people. And this is why Martin Luther wrote out 95 things he wanted to, do, to debate. And, and, of course, at the core of it was the idea that Scripture alone is our foundation. And this is the first one. This is one of the core elements uh, to the Reformation. They called it sola scriptura. These are the Latin words, and it just means scripture alone. And I believe this is our only foundation. The Word of God has to be our only foundation. Previous to, to Martin Luther, uh, John Wycliffe and John Huss, um, who were in the medieval period, were men who were desiring, right, that people would come to the scriptures, that uh, they would teach the scriptures, and then they had a lot of people who were attacking them. Right? The church as a whole then said, hey, look, you're, you're teaching something other than, than tradition, and we want to get these people over here. And, of course, they were coming out, and their response was always, you know, show me in the Scriptures where I'm wrong, and I will change, and I will recant. It was always their position. I believe it was Haas who said, you know, when, when the day comes, 
When the farmer in the field knows the scriptures as well as the pastor in the pulpit, my job will be done. It was his desire that the word of God become real to each and every one of us. Now, the reformers coming on this, and I I would love to say that that Martin Luther launched this whole thing, right, the Reformation, but it really was seasoned. The the people were really ready for uh, this element, the, the, the truth to be exposed, if you will. And so there was a lot of things happening, and Martin Luther just happened to be God's man at the right time, at the right place that unleashed the storm. But the one wonderful thing that the reformers, meaning Luther and Calvin and John Knox and others, is that they developed a real strong emphasis on the Scriptures, that people would know the Word of God, that people would have the Word of God. Martin Luther translated right, the Bible into German. Very important. It's considered a, a good translation, even today. Um, but they believed in this doctrine, that the Scripture alone, right? And they believed this to be the rule in the church. This has to be what carries the church, the, the Scriptures, right? The Bible. And that seems so straightforward and kind of uh, like, yeah, everyone, we get that, Pastor. That seems uh, quite, quite simple, but you'd be amazed. At, and again, in a general sense, how many churches are departing that truth? So the Reformers believed that the Word of God was had complete authority and was completely absolute. They would draw to, as, as uh, Paul did to 2 Timothy uh, chapter 3, and, and of course the first nine verses, uh, you know, Paul is, is telling Timothy, hey, there's, there's some traitors, there's some false teachers out there, and you've got to be weary, you know, Timothy, you've got to stick to your doctrine, you've got to stick going forward. And he kind of creates this new a model, right? And the reformers really picked up on this, and they said, this is what we have to do with the Word of God. This is how we have to live it out. And so verses 10 through 17 is really Paul's model, right, if you will, for Timothy. And, and, and for the reformers, they said, this should be our model as well in living out our lives. And this is what Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy 3, starting in verse 10. He says, but you have carefully followed my doctrine, a manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, love, perseverance, persecutions, afflictions, which happened to me in Antioch, in Iconium, in Lystra, what persecutions I endured. And out of them all the Lord delivered me, yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. That's kind of encouraging, isn't it, right? We know it to be true, though. But evil men and impostors will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. But you must continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. And of course, a passage is familiar to us. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine. That's the teachings of the church, right? For reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. So the Reformers saying we need to come back to the Scriptures. We believe that the Bible is the inspiration. It is inspired by God. It's very important for us, and each and every one of us, it has authority. They also believed that it was able to equip you, equip you, specifically you, right? The farmer in the field, if you will, right? That person who has their life, who's not a professional, doesn't preach from the pulpit, this word is for you. And and so the reformers understood this in a broad sense, 
that the Bible speaks, right, or calls God's uh, followers, right, what to do. It, it teaches us what to do. And then in a very specific sense, they said that every manners of life, every practical application of life, they believe the Bible was speaking to that. And so for us this morning, we want to grow and make sure we are understanding and apply this, this sola scriptura, that scripture alone is active in our lives. And so therefore, we must have this conviction. Is it inspired? Is it the inspired word of God? Peter says it this way, knowing this first, that no prophecy of scripture is of any private interpretation, for prophecy never came by the will of men, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. So the Bible must become our primary source to the struggles and the things of life. And this is what the Reformers were doing. It's not a tradition. This isn't what saves you. It is, it is finding the truths of Scripture, and it begins. And as we unfold these, you'll see how it makes sense. We have to come back to the Bible. It must be our primary source to everything we endure in life. There's an unknown, a famous, the famous unknown writer who said this, This book is the mind of God the state of man, the way of salvation, the doom of sinners, and the happiness of believers. Its doctrines are holy, its precepts are binding, its histories are true, its decisions are immutable. Read it to be wise, believe it to be safe, practice it to be holy. It contains light to direct you, food to support you, and comfort to cheer you. It is a traveler's map, the pilgrim's staff, the pilot's compass, the soldier's sword, and the Christian's character. Here paradise is restored, heaven opened, the gates of hell disclosed. Christ is its grand subject, our good its design, and the glory of God its end. It should fill the memory, rule the heart, and guide the feet. Read it slowly, frequently, prayerfully. It is mine of wealth, a paradise of glory, a river of pleasure. Follow its precepts, and it will lead you to Calvary to the empty tomb, to the resurrected life in Christ, yes, to glory itself for eternity. Do you believe that this morning? Is the Word of God our primary source for everything we do in life? Right. Many of these reformers ultimately lived in difficult lives. Many of them were burned at the stakes. Many of them gave their life for saying, no, it's not tradition, it is the Word of God. It should be important to us. As we see as it unfolds, right, it naturally goes to the next element. As the Reformers say, okay, solo scriptura is the first one. It is our foundation. It unfolds to solus Christus, right, our only mediator. It brought us to Christ alone. Now, in the Middle Ages, right, the church had kind of confused this. They had this idea of saying, yes, you need Jesus, but there's also these other traditions you need to hang on to. It takes us right to what Paul was saying in Galatians, right? It's the Judaizers coming in saying, yeah, it's Christ plus uh, observance of these things, this, these works. And Paul was saying, man, that's, that's the wrong equation. If you think it's Christ plus anything, you don't even have Christ. That was Paul's answer. We see it there in Galatians. We see it in the Middle Ages. We see it throughout church history. There's always this tendency to say, you know what? There is a partnership in salvation. And the Reformers said, no, it's not. When we open the Word of God, we realize it's not a tradition that saves you. It is Christ and Himself alone. There's a righteousness apart from the law has come. God so loved this world, He sent His Son. And we remember what Christ has done. The Reformers believe that this was the most basic of all the heresies, this idea that, that God on one side, His work and what God has done, plus our own righteousness. Righteousness. 
equals salvation. They believe that to be the strong heresy, the basic of all heresies. And of course, the motto of the Reformation, maybe you've heard that, Christ alone. Christ alone, through grace alone, because of faith alone. So they believe that Jesus at one moment, at a firm moment throughout history, accomplished for us what no one else could do, that he was our mediator. They believe Christ lived the sinless life. The substitutionary atonement alone was sufficient for our justification. And they also believe that a gospel that did not teach this, that a church that did not teach this, was not a faithful church to the scriptures. And it was not the gospel at all. And I'm going to quote from, from um, Michael Horton, who's talking about some statistics here. I think you'll find this quite interesting, talking about the importance of Christ alone. He says, today, once more, this affirmation is in trouble. According to a University of Virginia sociolo sociologist, James Hunter, he says 35% of evangelical seminarians, okay, these, are, these are gentlemen coming out of seminary, heading into pulpits to go into ministry. He said 35% of evangelical seminarians deny that faith in Christ is absolutely necessary. How does that happen? He goes on and says, according to George Barna, that is the same figure for conservative evangelical Protestants in America. And he has this quote, God will save all good people when they die, regardless of whether they've trusted in Christ, to which they agree. Again, it's, you can't read scripture and kind of make that conclusion, can you? Horton goes on, he says, 85% of American adults believe that they will stand before God to be judged. They believe in hell, but only 11% think they might go there. He quotes from R.C. Sproul, who says, Observe that to the degree that people think they are good enough to pass divine inspection and are oblivious to the holiness of God. To that, to that extent, they will not see Christ as necessary. If you remember from our study in 1 John, why is it important for John to say God is light and in him is no darkness? Because we realize God is holy and we realize he is holy, then it sets right our sin problem that John deals with in chapter 1. He goes on and he says, That is why over one-fourth of the born-again evangelicals surveyed agreed with this statement that one would think might raise red flags even for those who might agree with the same thing more subtly put. This is in quotes, If a person is good or does enough good things for others during life, they will earn a place in heaven. End quote. It says, furthermore, when they asked whether they agreed with the following statement, quote, Christians, Jews, Muslims, Buddhists, and other all pray to the same God, even though they use different names for that God. He says two-thirds of the evangelicals didn't find that objectionable. That's disturbing. Because I believe right at this moment, if they're honest, right? They have to say Jesus is lying. Because Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. They must not believe in Christ at all. He says, Barner observes... How little difference there is between the responses of those who regularly attend church services and those who are unchurched. One respondent, an independent fundamentalist, said, quote, what is important in their case is that they have 
conform to the law of God as they know it in their hearts, end quote. What does that mean, right? Our hearts conform to his law? Outside of Christ, there is no hope. I know this is a long uh, quote here, but it, just bear with me. He goes on, he says, But this cultural influence towards relativism is not only apparent in the masses, it is self-consciously asserted by some evangelicalism's own teachers. Clark Pinnock states, The Bible does not teach that one must confess the name of Jesus Christ to be saved. The issue God cares about is the direction of the heart, not the content of their theology. Horton goes on to say, For those of us who have some inkling of the direction of their heart, he cites Jeremiah 17.9, which says, The heart is desperately wicked who can know it. That might, be, uh, that might not be as conforming as Pinnock assumes. And of course, his last little paragraph here, sentence, he says, To say solus Christus, Christ alone, does not mean that we do not believe in the Father or the Spirit, but it does insist that Christ is the only incarnate self-revelation of God and redeemer of humanity. The Holy Spirit does not draw attention to himself, but leads us to Christ in whom we find our peace with God. <clears throat> now that was a long quote, but it's amazing. We talk about it and say, well, this is very simple, Pastor. It is Christ alone. I believe that wholeheartedly, but what's happening in the church as a whole today is not this. Now, whether those are, are liberal seminaries where these, these men getting ready to go into ministry are coming from or conservative or not, he doesn't say. But the idea, the urgency that we proclaim it is Christ, that there is nothing else, that him alone is what saves, is very important. It should be something that we hold on to and we trust and we vest into. Augustus Top Lady had this quote. He's a, a famous hymn writer. He actually wrote this poem to uh, response to, I believe, John Wesley, where he says, not the labor of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save and thou alone. Right? Rock of ages, we sing it. We love it. And for us this morning, my encouragement is for you to identify with Paul in Galatians 2, 20-21, where he says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died in vain. So if there's any other way we can get around this, Paul is saying then Christ died for nothing. If there's any way that you can earn this, then Christ died for nothing. And the joy comes, right, when we know out of God's word, we see that what Jesus has done for us is something we can never. And it needs to be something we cling to and we hold on to. Jesus is more than an example we should emulate. He's more than a martyr who is heroic. He's more than a psychotherapist who can heal our inner psychological wounds. And he's more, as Sinclair Ferguson says, more than a Santa Christ who gives you health and wealth. He's more than all this. He is a mediator and savior, and the reformers understood this. It's not to say that there's elements of, of, of following and in traditions of churches that aren't bad, but they're saying outside of knowing Christ alone, knowing him as your savior, and realizing he has done something you can't, there is where the joy begins. 
So they understood that the foundation is from Scripture and Scripture alone. They realized that that as we unfold the Scripture, we realize there's a mediator. His name is Jesus. And so naturally, if the church is saying, well, you know, Martin, how do you figure this out? How does this work out? So they had to go on to explain how does this take place because the church was saying it's Christ plus works, and now you're saying it's Christ alone. Well, how does it happen? So they went on to sola gratia, which is grace alone, our only method. Right? They talked about the grace of God. And everyone said, yes, God is good. We need his grace. And here the reformers understood this to be that we had no claim upon God. Right? Being born, we're born as sinners. We're born with a sinful uh, uh, disposition in life, even from birth. They realized that we all deserve, right from birth, we deserve judgment. We deserve going to hell, but God is gracious to us. Ephesians 2.8, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God. God's grace is extended to us, to which we say amen. We need the work of the Holy Spirit, right? God's grace extended to us, the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit, that we might be saved. Save us from our lost condition. No human being is ever going to be good enough. We could take all the best human beings we can think of, Stack them together, whether there's a thousand of them, and take all their good works and say, this, this is it. This is the best person we can, we can get together, right? These, these represent all the best things to which you would say, no, you fall short, right? We can't earn or be good enough. It is grace. It is God's grace extended to us that we see in Jesus. It's God's grace that brings us to Christ. It's Christ who releases us from the bondage of sin, to which we say, amen and amen. Some examples of this, uh, think of a thief, right? Have our eyes or our minds thinking about somebody who is a thief who has stolen from hardworking people. On some occasion, maybe he's hurt some victims or he's even killed some victims. He shrugs it off and continues his life of crime. Finally, he's apprehended and convicted. He's on death row. He hears that God can forgive of his sins through Christ alone. And even though he doesn't deserve it, he can't help, right? desire it. He does come to believe it. He trusts in Christ to save him from eternal judgment. He dies and he spends eternity in heaven. Take on the other side, a person who is very religious. Prays several times a day. He fasts twice a week. He gives 10% of his income to charitable causes. He doesn't swindle people out of money. He treats others fairly. He's faithful in his marriage. He thinks he's doing all the right things to commend himself to God. He dies it goes to hell. Now, in one sense, we could say, well, you're making that up, but these are examples from Scripture. The thief hanging next to Jesus on the cross in Luke 23. Jesus says, you will be with me. Believe in me. Remember me when you go into your kingdom. And then in Luke 18, where you remember the Pharisee and the tax collector, right, who go to the temple to pray. A tax collector beats his chest, can't even look up. Lord, have mercy on me. Jesus says, this man, when I'm justified. The Pharisee who is thankful that he's not like that tax collector, right? And that they're so grateful that he's in their presence. If you remember the parable, Jesus reduces him to just going home as the other guy, right? So it's about knowing, right? It's not about earning. It's about knowing Christ and believing on him and following after him. I heard a pastor one time say, grace can be best described as God's riches at Christ's expense. 
God's riches at Christ's expense. You know, we naturally want to resist, maybe, maybe it's not natural, but have a tendency to resist God's grace because it robs us of our pride. We didn't do anything, we didn't bring anything, nothing in my hand, simply to thy cross, right? We cling. Luther's is quoted as he says, Although out of pure grace God does not impute our sins to us, he nonetheless did not want to do this until complete and ample satisfaction of his law and his righteousness had been made. Since this was impossible for us, God ordained for us in our place one who took upon himself all the punishment we deserve. He fulfilled the law for us. He averted the judgment of God for us and appeased God's wrath. Grace, therefore, cost us nothing, but it cost another much to get it for us. Grace was purchased with an incalculable, infinite treasure, the Son of God Himself. So as the Reformers were opening the Bible and bringing us back to Scripture, He's saying, look, in this we find a mediator. His name is Jesus and Him alone. He is given to us by God's grace. And then how is it, it uh, the means of which comes to us is by faith alone. This is your next point. Sola fede, our only means. This was the, the doctrine as Reformers understood this to be which... Uh, the church stands or falls, right? Justification by grace alone, through faith alone, because of Christ alone. And we would say, why would they say that? Why would this be the statement in which the church stands or falls? Because they believed it to be the core Christian doctrine. It is what we have to believe in order to be saved. It is not of works, but it is by faith. It is given to us by God's grace. It's something we don't earn, but it's what Christ has secured for us. The full doctrine could be stated like this. Justification is the act of God by which he declares sinners to be righteous because of Christ alone, by grace alone, through faith alone. Grace, gracious faith, should I say, lays hold of Christ, embraces Christ in belief. It clings to the word, the word of God, his word, relies upon his promises. Martin Luther, another quote from Luther, it being, Reformation Sunday, we have to move him in there. So, faith lays hold of Christ and grasps him as a present possession, just as a ring holds the jewel. See, we commit our total person to Christ and faith, extended to us. So for us this morning, we have to realize, is it faith alone or is it faith plus works? Is it grace alone or is it grace plus works? Is it Christ alone or is it Christ plus works? And the scriptures are clearly saying this is all of God. And why would the scriptures push this? Why would, why would the Bible, as we unfold it, saying, look, it's all, we have to come to the Bible, and the Bible says there is one mediator. God has produced this mediator for us. His name is Jesus. And how do you come to know him? Well, it's by my grace alone, because I love you. I have grace for you. How do we get it to ourselves? How do we attach ourselves to Christ? It is faith, and the Bible says uh, the Lord is the author and perfecter of our faith. Why is that so important? Why was it important? Because God will not be denied his glory. No one on that day of judgment will stand and say, you know what, I'm so, God, in, in heaven and say, I'm so thankful, right, that we had a partnership in this. Aren't you lucky I'm here, right? That statement's not going to come from anyone, but it is all of God's glory. This is the motivation, and this is the last point. It sums up all these other doctrines. It is sola deo gloria, our only ambition, 
right? The, the reformers took to heart 1 Corinthians 10.31, Therefore, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. God's glory is seen in the beauty of His manifold perfections. The awesome radiance that breaks forth from these perfections, the greatness and worth that we see in His acts of creation and providence and redemption. And our response to this is what? Praise and glory. When we understand that we have the Bible, isn't it wonderful that we don't have a book full of pictures? Right? You ever thought about that? Can you imagine the interpretations we have? But God has given us a book that we might know him. And we open that book. We see that, that God has provided us a mediator. Right? As John says, he is Christ the righteous, our advocate, our propitiation. And we go, yes, I need him. And we understand that it is given to me because of God has grace on Tyson. He has, you know, plug your name in there. He has grace upon you. And extends it to it by faith. And of course, our response is what? God, may you be glorified in me. I want to enjoy God and glorify him forever becomes our motive. You know, when Paul is writing the, the letter to Romans and he uses the first 11 chapters to give some of the most wonderful doctrine we see in the church, right? And when he gets, before he gets to, to chapter 12, which is the therefore, right? The conclusion, how this is going to play out in your life. The first 11 verses as he, as he kind of writes of the history of salvation. As you think of, of moments in Romans where there's you know, chapter 3 where God is the just and the justifier. How does he maintain perfection and he'll save us? It's because he's poured out all his justice on his son. You think of Romans 8, right? There is now no condemnation and there's no separation. Just think of that chapter. It is wonderful. And as Paul unfolds all this doctrine by the power of the Holy Spirit, he concludes in chapter 11 before he goes on to chapter 12 with a doxology, with praise. Listen to these words that Paul says in Romans 11, 33 through 36. He says, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. Or who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has become his counselor? Or who has first given to him, and it shall be repaid to him. For of him, and through him, and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Think of that. Paul writing this. I know the power of the Holy Spirit writing this wonderful doctrine and coming and saying, man, God is incredible. God is incredible. Think of providing a Savior. Does he have to give a Savior? No, but he does. Does he have to give grace to you? No, but he does. Does he have to give faith to us? No, but he does. Does he have to walk with us? No, but he does. Does he have to provide for us? No, but he does. Does he get to enjoy his creation, his providence, these moments in life where we walk and we see his, his sovereign will unfold and sometimes it's a pure joy and sometimes that joy is full with tears because we walk through difficult things. But guess what? He's a God that doesn't depart. He's always with you. I love always when we think of this, we think there must be something very special about you. God would do this. What a wonderful, gracious, loving God. He desires that you would come to his word and you would find him. That you would taste and see he is real. That you would enjoy his grace and his faith and you would understand he has done something for me that I could never. I thank him for his son. And because of that, we respond. Look what Paul is saying. Of him indicates that God is the source of all things. This is back into Romans eleven thirty six. 36. Of him indicates that God is the source. All things, this is John 1, 3. All things were made through him, and with, 
Without him, nothing was made that was made. He's saying he's the source of everything. Paul goes on to say, through him indicates that God is the sustainer of all that he created. Colossians 1.17, he and he is before all things, and in him all things consist. Then Paul says, to him indicates God is the goal. All things exist for him. Psalms 135, 5 and 6 says, For I know the Lord is great, and our Lord is above all gods. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and in earth and the seas and the deep. All things really are from God. They're to God. They're because of God. And so therefore, we conclude to God alone be the glory. And this morning, you know, I wanted to bring to your mind just the importance of these, these five solas, these things of the Reformation. We can, we can chalk them off sometimes and say, well, that's history. No, what is being revealed is, is, is truth that changes lives. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is how we come to be saved. And for us this morning, because I talked about the, the church seems to, to have that, that wheel out of alignment. It kind of goes around or it hits bump steer. And it, it, when it gets away from the truths of God's word, we kind of end up all over the place. So how for us, how do we, how do we make sure these stay in front of us? How do we make sure they stay precious to us? I wrote a list out here. It's by no means exhaustive. You could probably add to it. And this is what I, by way of conclusion, what I would encourage you to do is, is first by having a high view of God, having a high view of God's word to become precious to you. I believe by confessing our sins to God and fleeing to Christ alone for forgiveness each and every day, should focus on praising God for his grace alone that saves us through faith alone that he's provided for us. We should be delighting ourselves in God as the creator, the provider, the redeemer, and we should worship him as such. We should be trusting God to work all things according to his plan and purpose. We should be surrendering all things into his hands. Lord, I know you've got this, but I'm going to hold on to this one. No, all of it. Lord, I trust you. We should be walking humbly and thankfully and cheerfully before God. Think of Micah 6.8. Love mercy and justice. By becoming increasingly conformed to the image of his son, it means walking and, and, and enjoying his word daily. By knowing the commands of God's word and desiring to live them out. By being heavenly minded and cherishing the desire to be with God. Oh man, far better for sure. And yet while we are here, we want to be earthly active in the great commission to see others become committed followers of Jesus Christ. And lastly, I would say, be, become, if not you already, zealous for God's glory. I know at times that can be difficult and we may think, well, I'm walking through some things, but I believe God is sovereign. I believe he's shaping us and molding us as he sees fit, that he has a purpose and a plan and that we are a part of it. So this morning I encourage you. The joy, is, as John says, the joy of having fellowship with God, and I realize that sometimes that joy is full of tears, but the constant remains. God is good. 
all the time. He is good. 